There's nothing to be more thankful for than the fact that our God is a great God, a great big God who uses big words sometimes in communicating to us. We've been in a series now for the past six weeks talking about big words, words like, well, you remember this we started with, predestination. Redemption was our next look as we talked about what God is doing in our world and in our lives. We talked about reconciliation and the breaking down of the barriers, the tearing down of the walls as Ephesians 2 describes what God has done. And then we looked at maybe not quite as long a word, but a really big word in terms of content, the mystery of God. Why does God choose? to love you and me and make a way for us, the mystery of God. And then the challenge that God puts before us, maturing. That's a big word. I am very sad to report that too many of us are too slow to get to the reality of this word. It is a sad thing when you go to the beach and see a man wearing a bathing suit that an 18-year-old should be watching should be wearing. You're thinking, I should grow up. It's a little late for that. We need to be growing up, folks. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go to church where people have been for 30 and 40 and 50 years, and we still act like babies. Can't do it. Cannot do it. Unacceptable. We must be maturing. It is a big word, not just in Ephesians, but throughout the New Testament. And it is our mission here at Pathways Church to help people to mature and grow up because that's God's desire for His people. And then last week, Jonathan did us the favor of bringing the big word of submission, which he has down pat in his marriage relationship. Right, Sonia? I got that somewhere. Yeah, he's got it down pat. He understands. No, it was a great teaching for what believers are to be about and realizing God's incredible goodness to us and our call to submit to His leadership and His will, His plan for our lives. These words are important, to put it in the words of the old children's song, because the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us that each of those big words is important. Our theme verse for this whole study was John 17, verse 8. He says, I have given them the words that you gave me. This is Jesus talking to the Father. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth. That's our prayer for this big words series, that you would know the truth of God, the truth about God, and the truth in God. Now, if you are a Bible student and you try to put things into your head as you understand the whole witness of Scripture, let me give you this little hint of a breakdown of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are really focused, and you can tell it by the big words that we used, the words of predestination, reconciliation, and redemption. You see, that's all uh, 
about stuff that God has done for us, about what we have received, what is ours by virtue of our being in Christ, God in us. Chapters 1 through 3, that's the emphasis. Our life in Christ, what we have received. But chapters 4 through 6 are more about what happens in our lives because Christ dwells in us and therefore how we live. So it's about Christ, us being in Christ, and then Christ being in us. It's really, it's kind of the two sides, right? Because Christ is, our life is in Christ, we know what it is to be predestined to become like Him. Because our life is in Him, we find redemption and reconciliation. Because He dwells in us, we can grow in maturity. Because He dwells in us, we can walk in submission, and because He dwells in us, we can walk in victory, which is what we'll be talking about today, because we come to this last big word, and the word is the word empowered. The word is empowered. And, and actually, if we were to split hairs, I could say that's the one Greek word. The Greek word actually translates to the phrase, be empowered. Because in the, in the Greek language that the Bible is written, it's all one word, in dunamuste. It gets translated into English, doesn't matter, King James, New International. Here's the phrase, be strong in the Lord. But you see, that's not something that we do for ourselves. This is not something we talk about a lot in English and grammar. We just speak it, right? But here's the fact. This is a word that exists in what is called the passive voice. It actually means something that's being done to you. What it really says is keep allowing yourself to be empowered by the Lord, in the Lord. Keep allowing yourself to be strengthened in the Lord. Now, I don't know what you came here expecting today. I, I know some of you really like to study through a book of the Bible, and maybe you were looking forward to getting to this last, last chapter of Ephesians. When you get to chapter 6, verses 10 through 24, the expectation is normally that the pastor is going to do some type of creative thing where you go through the armor of God piece by piece. I can remember when my son was a little boy, and we bought that toy plastic armor of God. And one day I had him wear the best plate and the sword, and he held up the sword. He had the helmet of salvation, and, and we did this piece by piece. What does this mean? That is not what we are going to do today. First of all, today he's 6'4", and that armor really doesn't fit. That's just no, no good. But what I really want us to talk about today is to focus on being empowered by God for the battle that we are in. Because whether or not you realized it, thought about it before you came in here today, you are here as part of a scene in a spiritual battle. And no, just to be clear, your battle is not with me. Your battle is not with anybody else in the room. It's not with how I say something. It's not with how anybody's dressed or, or acts or, or looks in terms of it's not what that person down the pew from you does that annoys the heck out of you. That's not the battle we're talking about. All that stuff should be forgotten. What we are talking about is not our personal habits or our personal preferences or what we like. 
The spiritual battle is the battle against human nature's bent toward the path of sin. Sometimes we call it the path of least resistance. Some of you fought this battle this morning, right? Your alarm went off and you had to fight off the temptation on a cold morning to just lay there. Oh, what, will it really matter? Will it really matter if I get up and go to a church service and worship God today? There are folks who aren't with us today. They gave in to that temptation. There's some that do. It's a battle. It's a part of it. That's the human bent. But even that's not the battle we're really talking about here in this passage. Instead, here's the real spiritual battle. Paul had been teaching the Ephesians, as I mentioned, chapters 1 through 3, about the high calling of God in Jesus Christ, what God has done for us. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins to teach about the life that flows from it. If you know Jesus, you are changed. You don't change to become good enough for Jesus, but when you know Jesus, He begins a work in you to change you. That's what we see in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. And as Paul writes this, he's laying out some of the standards of this life that believers individually have and for fellowship within the Christian community and for, as we saw last week, some of the more intimate relationships of spouses and how we parent children and how to relate within the home and all of that kind of thing. But before he ends the letter, after Paul gives this practical advice on relationships in the home that Jonathan preached about last week and how we relate to those we work with and all that kind of thing, Paul closes out the letter for this down-to-earth portion with a discussion about a spiritual reality. He says, you need to know that you are in a spiritual battle. And from his own experience, Paul knew the opposition is real and the warfare is intense. Here's what he says in 12 and 13. Did you hear? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. We read some of that a while ago in the Scripture reading together. Now listen, because believers are engaged in an ongoing spiritual battle with the powers of darkness, you need to understand, we cannot endure, we will not survive without the power of God. It is not possible. To be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, as this verse commands us to be, to continue to allow God to make us strong, to fill us in Him, is absolutely vital. It's essential. It's not, oh, well, maybe I will today and maybe I won't. You have to do it for your spiritual survival. And it is the key to living a victorious Christian life. So what Paul is saying, look, to enjoy a, a fruitful, victorious Christian life, it's not a matter of pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. It's not good enough. Building up your own strength alone is not good enough. Believers cannot give themselves the strength of the Lord. The Lord gives it. That's why we must be empowered. Matter of fact, one of the real keys to understanding what it means to be empowered is 
how he says it happens. He says, be empowered in the Lord. In the Lord. He doesn't say, by the Lord. He doesn't say, for the Lord. Don't be empowered of the Lord. He says, we are empowered in the Lord. And there's a reason for that, folks. And if you're here today wondering about the reality of Christian life and yeah, I've tried this. I've, I've prayed. I haven't always gotten the answers I've wanted. This, I don't know why. It's... The key to understanding what it means to be empowered is this phrase, in the Lord. And it is only when we are positioned, when our lives are in the Lord, only when we understand that our life is in Him, it is u- united with Him, we live in union with Him, only there can we find appropriate power to overcome the enemy. If, if it's not making sense to you folks, this is what that baptism thing was about a few minutes ago. I died to myself because I can't, I can't run this race. I can't win this fight. I cannot win this victory. Christ has fought the fight. Christ is the one who has the victory and is as we are in Him, in Him that we find victory. Here's what Jesus said in John 15. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. So let's get it clear, folks. Let's get it very clear. Our empowerment as believers comes from being in Jesus. That is it. This is what it's about. People talk about the secret to the Christian life. It's about being in Jesus. Apart from Him, we can do nothing, but in Christ, we have at our disposal all the strength. We have at our disposal His might. The Lord's power is what makes us capable. He empowers you and me with what we need for any task He assigns us including the living of life day to day in a way that brings him honor. So when Paul tells these believers, be empowered in the Lord, be strong in the Lord, he is calling them to be faithful. He's calling them to faithfulness, to abiding in Christ and trusting in the Lord's power for everything in life. See, the the, the crazy thing about the Christian life is that true strength comes from being completely dependent. True strength comes from being completely dependent on God. This is why Paul said, remember, verse, everybody loves to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not through my strength, but through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul's urging his command to continually allow yourself to be strengthened in the Lord. This is absolutely primal for the Christian life. This is why it's important that we deal with this part before we talk about all this armor stuff and, whoa, this is how a sword was used. This is what a breastplate did. This is why a helmet was important. Because here's the deal, folks. No matter what armor you use, 
no matter how finely tempered the metal, no matter how highly polished, no matter how perfectly it has been fitted to your physique, it does not matter, it does not matter if the heart of the soldier, if they just have the uniform, if they just have the equipment, but in their life they have the heart of a coward and the stamina of a child, they are not going to be victorious. It doesn't matter about the armor if what you put in the armor isn't prepared and ready to go. This is why I tell our ministers, in case you wonder about our personnel policy, we tell our ministers one working day a month, you need to spend time completely with God, away from this church, away from your family, away from your boss telling you what to do. You need to spend time reflecting before God on why you are doing what you are doing, who you are doing it with, whose strength, whose power, because that's the most important thing they can understand. How can they mentor and lead others like that if they don't practice that themselves? Work on the person. You can't be a great pastor. You can't be a great minister, children, youth, anything. You cannot if you are not trained up, prepared, close in Christ, empowered by Him. All the seminary training, all the armor, all the books, all the videos, it's just a pile of stuff unless the soldier is prepared. This is the reality of it. So spiritual warfare, my friends, always presents itself with two components. You've got to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, and then you have to put on the whole armor of God. Both are essential, but it's been my experience that churches just kind of get distracted by the second part, talking about the armor without focusing on the soldier and the importance of Christian combat, what God has planned for them. If you take a weak person who can barely stand and put the best armor in the world on him or her, they will still be an ineffective soldier. They will be easily defeated. So equipping any man or woman for Christian combat, for spiritual warfare, has to begin with being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. See, before a soldier is given a gun or trained how to fire a missile, before they do any of that, you know what comes first, right? Basic training. (laughs) You've seen it in the movies, the TV shows. I mean, work them to death. Just get out there and work and work and work. One specific purpose of basic training is to build up the recruit's physical strength. And it's kind of like the army or the military is saying, listen, soldier, we're going to eventually give you the best weapons. We're going to give you the best armor possible. But first, we have to make sure that you are strong so that you are prepared to use what we give you. Is this making sense? Don't we know this to be the physical reality? And if that's the physical reality, how much more is it true as our spiritual reality? And what is basic training for the Christian, if not Bible study, making disciples, equipping them, growing them up, and maturing them in the Lord? This is what we are about, creating Christian soldiers that bring honor to God. And I do mean spiritual soldiers. And and understand that spiritual courage 
spiritual preparation are absolutely essential because I think all of us know there, there are people who have great physical strength. There are people who have amazing intellectual prowess, but sadly, it resides alongside spiritual cowardice. Oh, I'm too smart to fall for that gospel stuff. Uh-huh. Sure you are. Yeah. Sure you are. I'm not weak. I don't need that kind of help. Sure you are. Mm-hmm. We have to realize that we are utterly dependent on God, and that should give us courage, not cowardice. You see, it's, again, it's a proven fact. Soldiers have increased courage themselves when they have a belief in the courage, bravery, and skill of their leader. Did you know that? Men and women actually want to follow courageous leaders into battle, not cowards. Here's the good news for us. The one we are following, Jesus Christ. We are strengthened in Him and in the power of His might, Jesus' might, which has already proved powerful to defeat the same spiritual foes which we are wrestling with. He has defeated hell and sin and the grave. This is what the Bible says about Jesus. King Jesus, victorious Jesus. He has triumphed, right? We sing that at Easter, right? He has triumphed o'er the grave. Just at Easter, right? No. All the time. And that's the leader who is empowering us and leading us into spiritual warfare. Now, see, in, in case you think I'm going on about this a little too much, here's what you got to understand. Paul spends, uh, this, is, this is huge. It's only after he gets clear on these big truths, these big words, this important word about our need, our spiritual need for empowerment. It's only after that that he gets around to dealing with the armor and using this illustration that they all know from the Roman soldiers and their equipment and all that they use. It's only after he establishes the kind of people the soldiers are to be. Now, I don't know. I'm going to just take a guess right now that, that some of this talk about spiritual warfare and us being Christian soldiers, that there's somebody in the room that that's just not hitting right. It, is, it has been my experience in recent years that, that Christians over the years, they start to get uncomfortable when you start talking about being soldiers, when you talk about marching into battle, when you talk about spiritual warfare. Sometimes just using the phrase spiritual warfare begins to worry people, oh, this, this is kind of like a cult, bunch of crazy people here, a little too fanatical for their own good talking about all this stuff. This is what the Bible's talking about, folks. It's reminding us that we are, we are in a spiritual battle. I think that sometimes people think that way, that, oh, I don't want to hear about the battle, because they came to Christ under what I would call a false sales pitch. They were told stuff like this, Jesus will solve your problems. He will make you happy. He will make you prosperous. He wants everything. For, he's going to give you a happy family life. He's going to give you peace and joy. Come to Jesus, and all these blessings and more will be yours. He promises you abundant life. And so they sign up for what they believe is going to be a wonderful life of peace and happiness. Now, here's the thing. A lot of that's true. 
Jesus promised a lot of those things, and he delivers on his promises. But here's the deal. When it comes across the way that that was just presented, that's presented about half the promises. Because you can go to John 10, and Jesus said, I'm going to give you abundant life. He's talking about the sheep, and it's all he said, oh, you're going to enter in and have the abundant life. You know what else he talked about sheep? In Matthew 10, you know what he said? I'm sending you out like sheep in the middle of wolves. Oh, oh, gee, both sides of, both are promises from God. Both of those things happen. Oh, there's another. Jesus says, I promise to give you peace. John 16, I give you peace. But he hit in the very same passage, he says, but in this world, you help me here, you will have tribulation. Oh, peace, tribulation. Wait a minute. I want to sign up for the peace. I don't want to sign up for the tribulation. I I I want the sign up bonus, but I don't want the expectation of the service. In John 15, he says, I, I, I love you. You know what he said? Same chapter, oh, but the world's going to hate you, <laughs> and they're going to persecute you because of me. That's what he said. And in Ephesians, particularly ch- chapter 5, 6, when he was talking about the submission part and talking about the home and, and how we can have a spirit-filled home as we mutually submit to one another, this loving relationship that is pictured by the relationship between Christ and the church in chapter 5. It's just beautiful, a beautiful picture of the Christian life in mutual submission. But then he goes on to also say that the Christian life is warfare in chapter 6. And not just any little old warfare. You, know, you like to sing that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You, you may remember that it talks about uh, the prince of darkness, grim. That's our enemy. Spiritual warfare, folks. It all comes together. The promises of these blessings and the promises that they're not coming easy, that we're in a battle. So it's vital, brothers and sisters, for your survival for your survival as a Christian, that you realize this. When you became a Christian, you were drafted into God's spiritual army. It just is part of it. And see, and if you don't realize that, or if you think, oh, I don't accept that, here's the problem. If you don't believe that we're in a warfare, then when a trial hits you, a difficulty comes, here's your question. What's wrong? What did I do? Why is God mad at me? Well, none of that stuff's true. You signed up, you're in warfare. You're just getting hit by the stuff that takes place. You say, well, why did God allow this? Because you're in spiritual warfare. God didn't aim at you, the devil's aiming at you. God's trying to provide you the armor. God wants you to be prepared as a soldier, but if you want to sit there and say, I don't really like that. Listen, you got to prepare. You, if, if you don't accept this, here's the problem. You don't affirm the reality of your situation. And dealing with anything requires that you begin with a definition of reality. You need to know you are in a fight. And you need to know that you have an enemy, a powerful one. And some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, this is grade school theology. I've met preachers who don't like this stuff. I've met pastors who think that because they are serving the Lord, He should bless them by keeping them from all conflict, bless them by keeping them from all personal attacks. First of all, I want to tell them, you've chosen the wrong occupation, 
Because what happens is when you're criticized or slandered or when problems hit your family or when problems comes to your church, then you run from the battle because you don't know what to do. Because they don't understand this principle. When God blesses a work, the enemy will increase the attacks against it. Folks, this is, this is not something I'm making up. This is what the Bible tells us. When a person's ministry, when your ministry in your neighborhood is effective, the enemy is going to ratchet it up over time to create problems for you, to bring him or her down, whoever it may be that's out there serving. God is doing a good thing, and Satan wants to stop it. It can be for a pastor or a church family. It can be internal problems in the church. It can be a key leader who turns. It can be discouragement. It can be temptation. It can be a moral failure on, a, on the part of a staff member or a prominent church leader. It can be any of that stuff. And if you don't understand that we're in a fight to the death, you know, oh, what's wrong? What do we do? Whose fault is it? I, I want you to see a great verse. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you because turning to it will take you a while. When Paul was living and working in Ephesus, this letter we've been talking about, he wrote to the Corinthians. Here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now look at that. He doesn't say a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. You know why? Because it's not a surprise to Paul. It's not a but, it's just an and. It goes with the territory. And part of our question needs to be, oh, I've never had anything like that happen. If you've not ever had any spiritual opposition to your life, I just wonder where you're headed, where you're going. Because when you go in God's direction, according to Paul, when the wide door gets open, there are going to be adversaries. There are going to be difficulties. They go along with the open doors for effective ministry. So stop acting surprised. Stop thinking that somehow it indicates spiritual failure when difficulties come. That somehow somebody's to blame for spiritual failure when criticism comes or when the church is, is, is criticized by us. Listen, expect it. Expect it in spiritual warfare. Let me move to wrap this thing up because the fact of spiritual warfare and being empowered by God is not going to be where we end today because I think it's always important to end with the why. Listen to verse 13. We all read this earlier. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, (laughs) when I read that, I thought that's pretty much every day these days, isn't it? When the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground And after you have done everything, to stand. Now, to stand is a military term. It means stand firm. Hold your position. That ground that is under attack, that you are holding it. It implies the courage to hold your ground because of your allegiance to the king you serve. So even if others flee the battle because the enemy appears strong, what are we to do? Stand firm. Stand firm. And here's the balance. You see, we rely completely on God's strength, and it is the armor of God. We use His armor. 
But we have to take the initiative to put on the armor and stand firm because that's a command to us. That's not in the passive voice. This is what we have to do. We have to get ready. We need to put on the armor and then we have to stand firm. It's not a matter of sitting back and saying, well, let go and let God. God's going to do it all. It's not a matter of you gritting your teeth and thinking that it's all on you. That's not true either. It is a blending of His power and our striving. Here's what Paul said in Colossians 1.29. For this purpose also I labor. Who labors? We do. Striving according to His power. Whose power? His power which mightily works within me. So let me, let me kind of wrap this up because you talk about taking a stand today. Most people think about political things. So as you live in Washington, D.C. area like we do, my goodness. And let me be clear about something. And, and this church and pretty much any church in this area in particular, not everybody is going to stand in the exact same spot on all the moral social, political issues of our day. All I got to do is say something like this, plastic straws, <laughs> impeachment, highway toll lanes, that'll get some of you fired up, abortion, systemic racism and sexism, immigration issues, sexual politics. You see, Here's the fact of the matter. Not even everybody who loves Jesus and is trying to live according to the Bible agrees exactly on where to stand. And here's what I have learned after 30 years as a pastor. There's just not a whole heck of a lot I can do about that. Because of moving you off of most of those positions is just dang near impossible. But the, here's what I want you standing firm on. What's the Word of God say? What is the armor of God for? What kind of battle am I in? And then I'm going to have to trust God and His Holy Spirit and His Word and you to work that out as we walk this life together. Honestly, there's not a human being on this planet that's going to tell you or me exactly very well where to stand. I, and and I, I can tell you this, I guarantee you this, trying to figure out your position on the basis of opinion polls or reading the latest book or the latest uh, social media post, that's nothing but a recipe for disaster. It's only in loving submission to God and His Word and His pathways that we are able to find the place where we are to stand and then to stand firm. And that is God's desire for you and me. That's why He has offered this big word, empowered. He wants to empower you to stand in that fashion. And so really, it's, it's this combination of two things. It's about having a biblically shaped conviction about where I stand and then having the courage of my convictions to stand even when the spotlight is lighting me up and there may not be a whole lot of folks standing right next to me. Can you do that? So I would just say, brothers and sisters, let's not leave. Ephesians 6, the big word empowerment behind us without understanding this thing. The Christian life is a question of availability and appropriation. See, you got to know it's a war. You got to know that the power to win is available. And then you have to choose to claim and appropriate that power. You got to walk with Jesus, be filled with the Spirit, put on the armor of God, and stand firm. Within you, 
folks, this is, this is the part's up to you. Decision time. You can choose to be powerless and fruitless even though residing within you is the power to do beyond what you can ask or imagine, according to Ephesians 3. You can, as a Christian, choose to be lethargic, indifferent, and cold, drifting in and out of church. I did say as a Christian. I didn't say as, as, a, as a, a living, breathing, fired-up Christian, obedient Christian, but listen, here's the thing. God's grace is amazing. He can, he can even, he will even save Christians who've grown cold. He, he'll, he'll do it. He'll do it. But who would choose to live that way on purpose, friends? Don't choose that. You will arrive, and instead of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, you will know that you did not do what you could to glorify God. God invites you to know the victorious Christian life by being empowered by His grace. And if you do that, you will celebrate, what's the word? Oh yeah, with great thanksgiving, His power and real life in Him. And in that spirit, our choir is going to lead us. They're going to sing, give thanks and crown Him for us. And I invite you to worship and celebrate this one who wants to empower you, the living God. No greater joy in thanksgiving than to know and walk with this God.